Welcome to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We are an evangelical free church seeking to honor God by making disciples that learn about, love like, and live like Jesus. Please be seated. Good morning, Journey Church. Welcome back from summer. Several of you that have been out and traveling uh, late summer and just so happy that you're here with us today. Um, Let me tell you, I was 15 years old. I had a great youth pastor named Mark. He was a phenomenal musician. And he decided that it was time to expand the worship team. And so he announced that he was going to do a group lesson for young guitarists. And so I knew I had seen it somewhere in my house. An old relic in a back closet somewhere. And I went digging, and lo and behold, I found the old relic. Grandpa Gratis's guitar. And I drug her to my group lesson at the church. And I learned about two and a half to three chords. And that was all she wrote for that season of becoming a guitarist. However, I really loved those two and a half to three chords. And like any bad karaoke singer, if you sound terrible, just get louder. And so I loved to wail on that guitar with those three chords. And I loved it especially the sound at the top of the neck. I loved the way the thing felt. And changing those three chords, I got really good at G, C, and D, okay? But uh, the point is that while I was doing that, I didn't notice that my pick was scratching the finish of Grandpa Gratis's guitar. No big deal, though, because it's just an old relic from the back closet. And so I went around the house and I found me a brown Sharpie marker. And I colored in those marks, right? No big deal. Well, here she is. This is the real guitar right there. You can actually see, if you look, that's me from 40 years ago. I did that. 1948 Gibson L50 archtop, solid one-piece hand card, spruce top in sunburst finish. Here's my question, just an antique relic that belongs in the back closet or a priceless family heirloom? She is now worth between two and three thousand dollars. I am now an accomplished musician and guitarist that knows dozens of chords and scales. I've been a worship leader for years. And now I know what I lost. I neglected, abused, damaged, and disregarded this fine piece of art. Mine for the taking. I was the inheritor, but I lost her. I know better now. Now, far from a clever analogy, actually it's very obvious, I am describing the attitude in our world concerning what they would call an ancient relic called marriage. And guess what? It is rampant in the church also. You might find yourself somewhere on that scale today. And the reality is that one day the world is going to wake up, perhaps too late, and discover that this beautiful institution called marriage was designed by God to be an amazing love affair between one man and one woman for life. Holy, life-giving. In fact, one of, the, one of the greatest chances that you have to have happiness in this lifetime. One of the good gifts that God gave to us for the propagation of the human race. To bring comfort and security, secure attachment, a safety net in every generation, in every culture. Whether they are Christians or not, God has given us this beautiful gift. And that is why the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 13 to the church at large, let marriage be held in honor among all. How sad when marriage is not held in honor even in God's people. The world will wake up one day. It's our job today because I'm not responsible for the entire world. I'm responsible for my heart, my attitude. Those that I've been blessed by God to influence my own 
spouse, my children, now grandchildren, the people that I get to love and serve and do life with and minister to and with, not only in this local church, but also in this community, that I would be one that would promote and that would, would lift up and model and emulate and brag on this beautiful thing called marriage. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Now, today we continue in our sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount, and we enter our next gritty subject, not just marriage and how beautiful it is, but, but the opposite, no-fault divorce. And Jesus engages topic after topic. We've already gone through uh, eight, eight weeks on what are called the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, etc., etc. And what we discovered there is that these are characteristics of inhabitants of the kingdom of God, not, not one for one, but, but as we live up and into the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, we are these kinds of people that embody these eight character qualities all at the same time. After Jesus un, unwrapped these eight qualities, he talked about the mission and impact of the citizens of the kingdom of heaven in this world. And he described us as salt and light. After doing that, he answered a question that everyone was asking. Are you teaching us some kind of new religious uh, philosophy? Is, is this a new law that is contrary to what we inherited from Moses and the prophets and the rabbinical teachings? Jesus answered that with a very direct, absolutely not. I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill not one jot or tittle, not one iota, uh, uh, period, or, or comma, will pass away from this law until all is fulfilled. And then he dropped a bomb with this statement that, that's so important to the topic today in the last two Sundays and the next five Sundays. Jesus made this statement, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never even enter the kingdom of heaven. And um, the question is, what is this righteousness that ex exceeds? And if we could stop for a moment, hit pause, and talk about that, because every single week, this is really important to remember this, in the various ways Jesus is teaching and to whom he is teaching, what is he trying to get across by this statement? Because it would have been shocking to the people, his disciples going, are you kidding me? The Pharisees are so crazy committed to religion. And we got to do better than that? Now he's got their attention, right? And then he goes into these six corrective analogies or examples of, of, of ways in which this, this righteousness that exceeds would actually be lived out in real life by real flesh and blood people that are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. So we developed a bottom line. I actually said that I might change it, shorten it. Um, but really it's good for these six weeks of talking about these illustrations, these examples. Jesus is teaching this is what it would look like in the area of, of murder. This is what it would look like in the area of lust. This is what it would look like in the area of marriage and divorce. Here's the bottom line, shortened a little bit more. A righteousness that exceeds out of the Pharisees, scribes and Pharisees, is a righteousness above, beneath, and beyond. And, and you notice this week I put in quotes, the law. Why is that? Because the first two illustrations Jesus gives, he says, you've heard it said. And then he actually cites one of the Ten Commandments. But now he says, you have also heard it said. And he's not citing the Ten Commandments. Now he's starting to address the traditions of the rabbis and Pharisees. And I put it in quotes. Um, you could go back. I'm not reading that yet. But in quotes, the law, and uh, just, just to, to give you a, a picture of this, uh, Dallas Willard, I think, nails this in Divine Conspiracy when he says, the law, quote, that they had in mind and that rubbed up against, they rubbed up against every day was not the law of God. So even the Ten Commandments quoted the Pharisee scribes and rabbis had tortured them. They'd misinterpreted them. The easy ones they made harder, the hard ones they made easier. 
They reset all the, the lines so that their self-righteous jerkiness, they could actually get in better on the easy ones and, and diminish the hard ones so that they could say, I'm still good. See what I'm saying? So Jesus is addressing this, but this law, says Dallas Willard, was a contemporary version of a religious respectability, very harsh and oppressive in application, that Jesus referred to as the, quote, goodness of the scribes and Pharisees. Jesus made it clear that his, his aim is to bring those who follow him into fulfillment of the true law of God, the true heartbeat of the creator. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is about. That's why these illustrations and examples, this is what it would look like to be made good from the heart. And that is, in fact, what Jesus is doing. He's resetting the boundaries that have been tormented and tortured over the centuries by hardcore religious philosophers. He's resetting those to where he originally intended them, for he is God and he is the divine lawgiver. Secondly, um, yes, as we read through the Sermon on the Mount, guess what? Not a single one of us has pulled this off yet which should lead us back to the Beatitudes, poor in spirit, for that is where the gospel is applied to our lives. Humility, saying, I got nothing. Can't do it. But unless we just park it there and say, yeah, and so I'm, I'm cool, I'm, I'm authentic. I'm authentically breaking the law, and that's really cool. I would also add, number three, that the explanations, the picture that Jesus paints of the citizen of the kingdom of heaven is something that you are becoming if you are an apprentice of Christ. If you have come broken and poor in spirit, you've received the gospel, and now you are following in the paths of Christ, you are in fact becoming the kind of people Jesus is describing. Got it? So he's resetting the boundaries. He's saying this is impossible. Come to me. I'll cover you with my righteousness. And then finally, but don't second guess this. This is who I am creating you to become. That's what he's doing with all of these illustrations. So, interesting order. First example, hatred, anger, and murder. Right into the second one last week on lust, adultery, and adultery in the heart and mind. Now, here's my question. If we could eradicate anger and hatred and lust and adultery in the heart and mind, would he even need to be talking about divorce? Would already be dealt with. The problem is that it was and is rampant in the world then and now and even in the church. Um, because we live in a fallen world, divorce happens. And so let me just try to set the stage, and then I'm going to just pray again really quickly here in a moment. There are people that actually study this and, and uh, embody this. You live this. You work hard at this. And God's been gracious. You've had a great life, mate. And it's just wonderful. And you know what? You should excel more and more in that. There are individuals that have been through a living hell. And it wasn't their choice. Divorce happened. You're here and you're like, oh crud, what is he going to say today? And do I actually check the box? Do I make it in with a legitimized divorce? And I just want you to hear, Jesus loves you. Neither do I condemn you. And then there's some rascals here that are fast and loose and flippant and willy-nilly. Hey, as long as it's legal, no big deal. And you are way more 21st century Americana then you are anything that could be called Christian or biblical. And you need a little bit of a spanking. Okay? That's God's problem. That's God's, God's decision. You, we need correction and instruction and a big hug. And there's a possibility that we need all three. Because we toggle between and we're like shattered. And like one part of me wants to honor God. And oh, I feel so embarrassed. I did some really terrible things. And then one part like, please tell me I'm okay and I'm not condemned here. And really, it's, we want to be true to the scripture and true to Jesus and true and let the Lord bring application. So I, I want all that to happen. Can we stop and just pray? Because again, we're walking on, on thin ice. I love you. I don't want to lose you, but I want to tell you the truth.
and let God sort that out. And I, oh man, that our hearts would be soft and receptive to what he has. Lord God, I don't know what you want to do with each individual. I just know what your word says and, and what I think I see in, in the old and new covenant and your heartbeat. Um, Father, by your spirit, would you uh, do what you need to today and that so that even the, the most rascally rascal would be restored in a spirit of gentleness by your word and your spirit and your people. Lord, we love you. Please be with us in this time. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So what does it look like to live above, beneath, and beyond the law in the area of divorce and marriage? This is what Jesus says in verse uh, chapter 5, verse 31 and 32. It was also said... So he's citing back to the, the last text. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, the word there in the Greek is pornea, that is less than full-blown adultery, but definitely more than irreconcilable differences. Okay, pornea. And anyone who does that, except for this cause, makes her interesting. Why is it her, not him or her? We'll talk about that in, in a moment. Makes her commit adultery. This is moikia. This is sex outside of marriage by, by one or two married people that are not with their spouse. But, so this woman is being forced into moikia. And that's rather interesting. Someone is making her. You go, no one makes you sin. You're not being made to sin. And yet Jesus says, yeah, this person is making her commit adultery. And then he goes on, whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Or moikia. Now, first note is this. This one's shorter than the other illustrations. Why is that? Because Matthew, who is writing down and synopsizing uh, you know, writing down the Sermon on the Mount knows that he's going to write about another interaction with Jesus and the Pharisees on this topic in chapter 19. So two things, he doesn't have to actually go into the depth and nuance here. But secondly, we absolutely need to consider Matthew 19. And we will do that in a moment. So, um... A few other notes about context. In Jesus' day, a man was considered good and right and upright, even if he had multiple divorces, so long as they were legally ratified. So long as there were lawyers and judges involved and he's got this certificate, he's a good guy in society. Doesn't matter why or what, just that's all that matters. It is no-fault divorce run amok. And, and the reason why he thinks he's a good guy is that this lady that he doesn't like, for whatever reason, and he's holding all the chips. He's holding all the power. But he's so good because if she gets caught with another man, she can't be murdered for, for adultery because she's single now. Or, or she can be free to try to find someone who's willing to marry her. Now, I'm not talking about today. I'm talking about back then. Anyone who would marry her, though, in that culture and time, would consider her to be damaged goods. And so it's likely that this second dude, or third, or whatever, is going to actually treat her as less than, and with contempt. Or finally, if she can't figure out um, some other better situation... She's at least free to work as a prostitute. You say, wait a second, where's that in the Bible? I'm not saying it's in the Bible. It's not good. It's not godly. But it was absolutely in the culture. Ancient, ancient Israel and first century Judaism, where we're at right now. It's not good. It's not of God. It's not optimal. But this is what the husband is forcing her into. There's no welfare. There's no social security. There's no no net and there's religious contempt not against him but against her isn't that icky women these are these are your people these are your sisters isn't that horrible 
Men, are you outraged? This was the way of the world, and these were the Jews who claimed to fear Yahweh. It's so wrong, and you, there should be a sense of outrage, and yet this is what Jesus is saying, is like, by what you're doing, you are forcing more horrific, terrible sins. Oh, you walk free, but don't think you're off the hook. And that's what he is addressing here. But this is like serious stuff that's going down, and, and there's, there's going to be more that we unpack here, but what we can know for sure in these two little verses, Jesus is absolutely against no-fault divorce attitudes. Now, in order to understand what's going on here and what we're going to find out in Matthew 19, we got to go back, and because he made a citation here, and it actually shows up in Matthew 19 as well. Um, and he's, he's quoting someone. You also heard it said that anyone who divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Where is that from? This is from Deuteronomy chapter 24. Deuteronomy 24. And this is what it says. When a man, this is Moses, and then I'll talk about why was Moses doing this, because it doesn't seem to fit in with the Ten Commandments or these other things. Moses is giving this for a reason. He says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if, if, if he marries, if she, he finds no favor in her because he has found some indecency. Stop there for a moment. What in the world is that? This, I believe, is what Jesus is citing when he uses the, the word Jesus taught in Aramaic. Matthew's recording it in Greek and using this word pornea. But the Hebrew equivalent is, is this right here. Some indecency literally means nakedness or nakedness of a thing. It's translated uh, different ways, but primarily some shameful indecency. This could be something that he didn't know about or something that he caught her in. Um, typically has the connotation of, of some kind of sexual impropriety. But I will tell you this. It's short of adultery. Why? Because Leviticus 20.10 already laid down, down the law for adultery. That both the woman and the man caught in adultery must be put to death. So now there's something else less than adultery that Moses is allowing for a husband that finds this out is allowed to send her with a certificate of divorce. He writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. It says if he were to do this. And now here's the real point. Moses is explaining, so as to control the chaos in ancient Israel. So I've already talked about first century Judaism and how rampant no-fault divorce was. Apparently we got the same problem going on a thousand years, fifteen hundred years before that. If he does this, verse 2, and if she goes out and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce puts it in her hand, sends her out of the house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife. So now, second husband either divorces her or dies. Verse 4, then the former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. So here the no-fault divorce position thinks as long as we got lawyers involved and there's a certificate of divorce, no big deal. It's like a cheap, dirty, quick transaction, conversation. You want to live together and not be adulterers. Let's just have this agreement. But what Moses is indicating is something very profound and metaphysical is happening. That she's actually being defiled in that second relationship. And, and because of that, you, you can't take her back. Like, you can't just play Russian roulette and go, well, I got a new wife or I stayed single, and actually I kind of started to like her again. I think it'll give it a second go round. And it was just a flippant musical chairs with the women. All the men saying, hey, all the women are all ours. And we may have them one at a time, but we just got to make it legal. Okay, and then if we don't like it, we can switch them around, but we got to go through due process. This is kind of mind-blowing because we think of the Jews and we think of the Pharisees as being so strict so committed to what is good and righteous, self-righteous, and yet they're so, have so much contempt for women, such a low view of marriage that it's rather shocking. 
And Moses would go on to say, it's an abomination before the Lord. You shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving to you for inheritance. It's rampant in the culture. We think that we have it bad today. But Moses is trying to restrain and contain the chaos that his people are committing. This, this reckless, no-fault divorce, he is restricting it to legitimate reasons only. And apparently Jesus agrees with Moses. There really is divorce. It's never happy. It's never without pain. But there is legitimate divorce. Okay, now fast forward up to Matthew 19 where Jesus goes deeper on this subject matter. Matthew 19 verse 3 says the Pharisees came up to him and tested him. So they're really trying to, to entrap him in this argument. And they say, is it lawful to divorce one's wife, and here's the key phrase, for any cause? And we would read that and go, duh, of course not. That's stupid. And yet, there's a reason why they use this, because that's actually what they believed. And they wanted to make Jesus look bad in front of the rest of the people, because that's what they believed. Not the women, but all the men who had all the power. Any cause was a reference to an inter internal debate that was going on in Judaism uh, between two schools of rabbinical teaching. Bet Shammai and Bet Hillel. Bet Hillel taught that divorce for any reason was okay so long as you fulfilled the letter of Moses' teaching Give her a certificate. Send her packing. That's all you have to do. You're good to go. Guys, you want a divorce? You just got to get the legal pink slip signed. Okay? Shammai taught that there was, in fact, legitimate divorce, but it was limited to grave sexual impropriety. And as I've said, Hillel was the major opinion of the day. No-fault divorce for any reason. She burns the food. You don't like her as a cook. You can get a cuter wife that's also known to be a good cook, and she's available. Write her the certificate. Invite her in and marry her. You're good to go. That's Hillel. Shammai? No. And guess who Jesus aligns with? The minority position of Shammai. Maybe about 10% of the Jews in this day and age aligned with Shammai and said, no, marriage is holy and sacred. That's how messed up. When, and I can actually show you, we'll see this in a moment in the text. And instead of going back and citing another rabbi or even citing uh, the words of Moses, Jesus takes them back to the very beginning, Genesis 1 and two. And this is what it says in verse 4 of Matthew 19. He answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? That's Genesis 1. And then he moves on to Genesis 2 and he says, And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together let no man separate. So he's taking them back to the source and he's using this, this deep, profound theological truth that don't you understand? Don't you understand? You think that it's so simple and it's just like a, you know, a contract and you get to sleep together and then no big deal. Walk away if it doesn't work out. And he's bringing it back to Genesis 1 and 2 and say, you don't have a clue at how profound this union called marriage is and what it does to the mind and the, the body and the soul and the spirit. That all those things are being blended to such a degree that no matter what the divorce is over, it's never going to be simple or without massive amounts of pain. Brought a quick analogy, quick picture here I did about 10 years ago. Um, I normally like my eggs fried. I got two eggs here. This is about how much I eat per day, whether it's in a, what I call man cakes 
or if I just fry them in the pan. But I think a lot of the world thinks of, of eggs um, like this. Just two eggs, you throw them in the frying pan, and this is marriage, okay? Life's hard, give it a whirl. It's, you know, things don't always work out. Um, there's worse things than, than divorce. And if things don't work out, you know, just you can still kind of get, uh, you know, it's pretty much the one egg. I was able to pull that out. True story. Maybe a little bit of, of commingling there, but it was pretty easy to pull it apart. You put that in the frying pan, and you let those, especially if it's hot, right? And man, where they hit, they blend, they, they seal up together, and we think, oh, my wife wants one of my eggs. Or I'm going to make two, two breakfast tacos, and I need an egg for both. I just take my spatula and slice it. And yeah, sure, you know, there's this commingling right on the border, and that's really not a big deal. Well, that's not theologically accurate. That's not what Jesus was teaching here. That's not what Moses, when he recorded Genesis 1 and 2, it's way more like a scrambled egg omelet. This is not to freak you out or to bum you out. Those of you who have gone through divorce know what I'm talking about. There's a reason, and, and, and it's in the text, there's, there are reasons for legitimate divorce, but try to separate that now. There's been the commingling of minds and hearts and finances and goals, mission and life. And you've done, done Christianity together. You've commingled your bodies. You've perhaps made some little baby eggs as well and added them to the omelet. And guess what? It's just messy. It's messy. And man, you, you study sociology and you find out the unintended consequences um, here's worst case scenario, and I'm not telling anyone, anyone's stories, but it's a real story. You know, I was looking for my real soulmate. I was so young. I was, I was looking for the true love of my life. I love them, but I wasn't in love with them. So I'm off, and I'm free, and now I can go and find the love of my life. And we treat it like fried eggs, not like a scrambled egg omelet. And now you know the price tag, many in here. Uh, children of divorce. Or parents of children that have divorced or it's your story. And you go, yeah, I'm not here to condemn you and say you're a bad egg. I'm here to say that was painful, wasn't it? And if we could rethink the way we do life and marriage and how we view divorce, there's got to be something better than the shredding of lives and hearts and bodies. There's got to be something better, and in fact, there is. And that's why Jesus says, what God has joined, let no man separate. Marriage is serious. Divorce is complicated and painful. You know it firsthand. And so what can we do? They want to argue him in this. And so they come back with the quote from Deuteronomy, and they misquote it. And they say this, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? Like, you have to. Oh, you found something indecent? A nakedness of a thing? You have to divorce her. Moses never commanded. God never commands divorce. Why did Moses command him and send him away? See, the rabbis had figured out how to even take what Moses was attempting to teach ancient Israel— you can't play musical chairs with your wives. There's got to be some, some restrictions on this thing. And they were able to, to, to reach in there and reinterpret that to say, see, all we got to do is, and what we get to do is, is to just send her away. She burned the food again. Now, Dallas Willard cites Rabbi Akaba. He even allowed... Divorce if the husband merely saw a woman whose appearance pleased him better and he wanted her as a wife instead of the wife he had. That's how loose it had become. And they want to throw that back in Jesus' face. And so this is what Jesus, and this is powerful, and this is going to take us into our subpoints. Verse 8, he said to them, Moses didn't command it. It's because of the hardness of heart. Moses allowed you 
to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for pornea, marries another, commits moikia. Pornea, adultery. Moses and God did not command it. Um, even in the most extreme cases, you do not have to divorce your spouse. You don't have to. There is permission, and we'll get to that in a moment. Why does that happen? He merely allowed it. His first choice is always repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation. Now, to show you how deeply this permeated the culture, it says in verse 10 and 11, the disciples, Peter, James, and John, Matthew, who's writing this, the disciples said to him, if this is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. This tells us they actually had bought into Bet Hillel. No-fault divorce. The very followers of Jesus that become the 11 apostles had drunk the Kool-Aid of the culture and figured so long as we get lawyers involved and it's complete and finalized, hey, it just didn't work out, no big deal. They're actually shocked into reality and they go, if such is the case, better not to marry. And Jesus says to them, not everyone can accept this, but only those to whom it is given. And that's just powerful to think, as legalistic and up, uptight as the Pharisees were, and the first century Jews, how committed they were to God, that their hearts could become so hard toward something so beautiful as marriage. And that, that men and women are sacred image bearers, and marriage is the commingling of souls that is supposed to be for a lifetime. Now, you might have already know this. And you're going, I'm good to go. I know. I've either lived it. I've been through it. I'm not going to go through it. I'm, I'm, I consider myself so blessed. We hit our 50th anniversary, and we, we're good to go. Um, but there still needs to be some training. And there's others that maybe it's like, I didn't know. You're not supposed to divorce? No, you're not supposed to. You don't have to. Even if you can, you don't have to. And still others, um, perpetrators, they go, yeah, I'm looking for my next for my next uh, victim, um, but you call yourself Christian. Um, let me just start with some of these fill-in-the-blanks, and the first is this. Moses said and Jesus affirmed that the only reason for divorce, divorce is not, not moikia, adultery, not pornea, nakedness of a thing, but hardness of heart. Even the pornea, even the moikia, doesn't cause divorce, but sclerocardia. Follow? What's sclerocardia? That's the Greek term for hardness of heart. Sclerosis of the cardia, the heart. And so here's the deal. Divorce does not happen because of the presenting problem. It happens because one or both partners develop a hardness of heart in the midst of that impropriety, okay? It only takes one hard heart to destroy marriage. You might be in here and you were the one with the soft heart. You were the one that fought for redemption. You're the one that held out hope and in the end, it still fell apart. It only takes one hard heart in a marriage union. That's why marriage is so risky. Such a high-stakes gamble. Just one partner goes off the rail. But I'll also tell you this, what, ha what can happen quite often is the perpetrator's hard heart hardens the victim's heart. And so now you have not one but two. And that's a dumpster fire. But it's always a hard heart. So sad. Hard hearts are never a good thing, and hard hearts are not about the kingdom. Proverbs 28, 14 says, Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. And then Romans 2, 5, there's judgment for hard hearts. Because of the heart of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's judgment will be revealed. And then Malachi 2, 16 talks about the hardness of heart that was taking place in, in ancient Israel. Um, concerning marriage and divorce, talking to the men, 
the prophet Malachi says, For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. He's saying, please don't harden your heart. Please don't divorce your wife. For whatever reason, even if you think you've got a legal and moral and religious out, you don't have to do that. Love your wife. Look at the story of Gomer and Hosea. In God's redeeming love illustrated through that Old Testament prophet. That's God's first choice always. But secondly, secondly, divorce is God's concession to limit further harm. Now, I'm just going to say we do not have a modern equivalent because both texts, Deuteronomy, Malachi, Matthew, there's a 100% male-dominated society. We do not have the modern equivalent spoken to in the scripture. The men always did the divorcing. The women had no rights. That is wrong. Praise God for a, a better and more just society. I'm dead serious. I believe this. Okay? That there is greater equality in our modern world. This was not okay. Okay? But what would happen, and I think that we can learn from this, a man that got triggered... He gets jealous, he gets suspicious, um, or he finds out she has been impure, messed around before marriage or in the marriage, and he goes off the rails. And guess what? She is his property. And so he uh, demeans her, mistreats her. Uh, there is such a thing as called marital rape. Because he goes, you know, you're nothing better than a prostitute to me. They're married. This is his wife. He took vows. But now he is treating with her contempt. And guess what? The rabbi will not step in. Society will not step in. The, the magistrate will not step in and stop the spousal abuse in the ancient world, even in God's people. And so he ends up battering her and murdering her if he cannot divorce her. Understand this. She might be the best gift God could ever give him, but he's a jerk. And he still divorces her. And guess what? That divorce is better than ongoing harm. Listen, this is, this is from 1 Corinthians 7. Paul's talking about people getting born again in a first century world of Corinth. And one's a Christian, one's not. And lots of Christians thought, well, I'm a Christian now, they're a pagan, i got to divorce them. And Paul goes, no, time out, you don't have to. In fact, if they will live with you, they might actually learn about Jesus. And by the way, your kids, just because you're a, you're a godly person, your kids are all set apart as well for salvation. They have a better chance of knowing Jesus because you're a Christian. Just takes one. Don't necessarily divorce them. But if they demand it, let them go. Why? This statement. God has called you to peace. Marriage is supposed to be a place of peace, not hostility and danger and contempt and abuse. Ladies, if your husband's a jackwad, call your pastor. Rat him out. Call, call the, the sheriff. Call the police. If he's abusing you, if he's menacing you, do not keep his secret. I told God, I, I don't want to get emotional today. Oh, I just feel so strongly about this. The church, so many churches have been a, been a safe haven for toxic men abusing the daughters of God. We go through marriage counseling. We tell them what to do and what not to do. The scripture's so clear. Then they get and they hide it in the home. And the wife keeps the secret and withers. Better to bring it to light and get help early than to wait until your heart is hard. Okay, that's like my, didn't plan on that. Didn't plan on that. It's so sad, but divorce is God's concession to limit further harm. And you see it throughout the scriptures. And here's the final thing and then a bottom line. Two spiritual tender hearts simply will not divorce. Two. Takes two. One can wreck it. But two tender spiritual hearts simply will not divorce. They, even though it's hard and there's two genders and personalities and different cultures blending, the resources of the kingdom are always more than enough for them to work through their stuff, to love each other, to forgive each other, to speak the truth in love, and to move forward into tender intimacy for life. 
If you're asking the question, where's the line, where's the box to check, where's my out, you're asking the wrong question. Like, how can I get out of this thing? This is what I'm hearing in this message. Was my divorce legitimate or not? That's the wrong question. The real question is, how can I love this person? How can I be Jesus to this person? How can I serve this person such that this person knows that they are a precious son or daughter of God? whether they acknowledge it or not. That's the real goal. That's what it looks like to let marriage be held in honor among all. And here's finally our bottom line that I think is for all of us today. When we nurture soft, responsive spiritual hearts, we minimize divorce and maximize marriage. It's, it's not just about not getting divorced. It's about how do we like maximize this wonderful gift that we of all people have the resources of the kingdom to flourish in marriage. Yes, it's hard work, but when two people do that work, they simply will not divorce. The real work for each one of us, no matter where we're at in our marital journey, pre, post, or in between, or your widow, or any number of things, the real thing for all of us is what the scripture says in Proverbs 4.23 Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Nurture a tender spiritual heart toward the Lord, a forgiving heart, a pure heart, a loving heart. Serve your spouse. If you're single, prepare yourself now for that union someday in the future. And then the writer of Hebrews again, do not harden your hearts. As in the rebellion on, on the day of testing in the wilderness, um, Hebrews 3.12, take care lest there be any in you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another. We do this for each other, not just Jim preaching or Tyler preaching or Kyle or Kenyon, but exhort one another every day as, as long as it's called today that none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Hard hearts may make divorce necessary in order to avoid greater harm, but kingdom hearts are not hard. Nurture that tender kingdom heart. Well, my grandfather's Gibson L50 archtop in sunburst finish is gone. I lost her. She now belongs to my brother-in-law. He deserves her. He always knew her value, and he's always treated her with dignity and respect. In 2003, however, years after becoming a musician, guitarist, worship leader, my father blessed me with an excellent, very valuable uh, Taylor 414 CEL1. It's a beautiful instrument, and it plays beautifully. And it is now well-worn. A little neglected these days because I'm, I'm busy with some other things, but I know how to play her. And we make beautiful music together. And she keeps getting better with age. And no, I don't take her for granted. In 1994, my Heavenly Father blessed me with something far more valuable than any guitar. He gave me one of his best daughters named Stacy Roden. I think we make beautiful music together. And she keeps getting better with age. And no, I do not take her for granted. She is not an antiquated relic. She is a priceless family treasure. Those of you who are married today and your marriage is decent, pretty good, do you see your spouse like this? Is your spouse a treasure? If that's so, keep in that path and excel in that, as Paul the Apostle would say. Maybe you're here, you're married and complacent, and you say, good enough, I've got other fish to fry other omelets to make. You might be far from divorce, but God's standard is not just staying married, but flourishing in this beautiful thing called marriage. Married with concerns, and I know I, I burst out and I get so passionate about that because I've dealt with so many marriages and so many men that are abusive and they keep it hidden in secret. That drives me crazy. Can you please call out for help before it's too late? Get help early for your marriage. Get discipleship, accountability, and correction early before it's too late. You're here, you're unmarried, but you're hopeful. 
Become the person today that the person that you're looking for is looking for. Work on becoming the person today that the person you're looking for is looking for. And then all of us, all of us, we need to hold marriage in honor. No matter what our past, no matter what our pain, that we would support, encourage, and pray for one another. And then one final thing, stay humble. We're not here to dissect one another's marriages and figure out who did it right, who did it wrong. Listen, there but by the grace of God, there go I. And guess what? If Stacy wanted to divorce me and claim pornea, she's got me dead to rights. I have not walked on water in my life. Who has? So how about this? Those who are caught in sin, those who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. How about the cross and the blood of Jesus is bigger than divorce, bigger than moikia, bigger than pornea. How about this is the same Jesus that forgives our sins and the same Jesus that begins to transform us from the inside out, that we are no longer that person any longer. Can we hold fast to the cross in this topic? Broken, damaged people, pain and heartache, hopes and fears, regrets, but together in love under the cross. Father, right now, you know what uh, these texts, these scriptures and my, uh, my ranting has done. And Lord, I just, I love you. I love marriage. Oh, we want so much for one another and, and so much for this world that's being trampled upon and disregarded and mocked and slandered and, and redefined. And what a mess it is, Lord. There's we're going to reap the whirlwind, but please let it not be so in our families, in our children, in our church. Lord, please let it not be so in our community. Lord, could the divorce rate actually drop in Pima County because Christians were able to permeate society in such a way and to strengthen and help marriage in general. People through this would come to you, to the gospel. And transform us, God. We need you. Right now we say your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray this in Jesus' name together. And if you agree with that, say amen. Thank you for listening to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We'd love to have you join us in person on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. You can find out more about us at journeyefc.org.